What is crackalackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Brommel. I am, however, super pleased and excited to be joined by longtime friend of the podcast, Adam Spinella. You can follow him on Twitter, at Spinella14, spelled exactly as it sounds. He is the founder and the, the primary content provider for the box and one follow them on Twitter at the box and one underscore that's at T H E B O X A N D O N E underscore does a great job breaking down all things basketball, including the NBA, but is also just spectacular as I'm sure, you know, at analyzing the draft. And so we are here to really pick spins coach spins his brain about the NBA draft. He is also, for anyone who needs to know, and you should want to know, the head basketball coach at the boys' Latin school. Uh, again, this dude knows his stuff. Have, have, it's been really cool to sort of see him come up through the NBA draft, basketball ranks in general. Uh, I have known him for a long time. There is nobody who works harder. He is great people, so it's a fun conversation. But before we get started... I did want to touch on just some of the more newsier, splashier news notes that are floating around the league. We have uh, rumors about Zach Levine, DeAndre Ayton, and then most recently, which is where we begin, uh, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. The New York Daily News' Christian Winfield reported that the Nets, as of now, are, quote, outright willing to give Kyrie Irving a long-term extension. He holds his player option uh, ahead of free agency this summer. Their stance is essentially that they don't trust his availability, whether it's because of injury. And it does seem like there are some hurt feelings or there's a lot of bubbling animosity over Kyrie's decision to not get the COVID-19 vaccine this past season or at all yet, which uh, played a huge role in limiting him to sub 30 appearances also played a huge role in not only Kevin Durant's, gargantuan workload, but James Harden eventually forcing his way out of Brooklyn. Uh, Christian Winfield also reported within that same piece that the Nets uh, have not spoken with Kevin Durant since the first round sweep. Um, That, of course, lends itself to the question of, well, if the Nets really want to move on from Kyrie Irving, what does that mean about Kevin Durant? Here's, Here's the thing. This is where I land. The Nets have to keep Kyrie Irving because they have, assuming he wants to even come back, uh, because they just have no other choice. The, the Getting rid of him is not a luxury they have if they also want to keep Kevin Durant and not start over. It's just not possible for them right now. You look at what could happen um, in terms of a Kyrie Irving departure. If he leaves in free agency and they just get nothing, that's, that's disastrous. That's just, it's disastrous. And a lot of people pointed out, well, there's very few teams with cap space. He's not going to want to sign with Detroit or Orlando or San Antonio, yada, yada, yada. If he really wanted to, this would be the nuclear measure, but he could go sign with, say, the Spurs, and then they could trade him once he's eligible to be traded in the middle of the year and just get a bunch of assets for having rented him for a half season. Uh, that's, uh, that's a scenario that teams, in theory, could be open to. Uh, I'd be curious to see what the NBA's reaction would be if something like that did happen. But Kyrie has done more nuclear things in the past, like requesting a trade from the Cleveland Cavaliers after three straight finals appearances and one NBA championship. So, no, I wouldn't classify that as a likely scenario, but that is theoretically what he could do if he was trying to box the Nets into a corner and force them to send him somewhere he wants to go. And that's the other 
side of all this. They could sign and trade him and then in theory get compensation for his services. You're not, in most cases, making out like a bandit in those situations. Maybe that's different this year just because there are so few teams with cap space that the ability to get someone like Kyrie Irving is just so rare. Someone as good as him, if he's going to be available for you on a night-to-night basis, um, that you are willing to give up more since that's your only pathway to getting him. There has, there has to be a market for him. And I'm not saying teams won't want Kyrie Irving. They want Kyrie Irving. He's a top 15, 20, 25 player, whatever, when he's fully available, which he just hasn't been in forever. So it's tough to really peg uh, where he stands in, w- within the rest of the, the league star pecking order. There will be teams that want him still. Uh, will there be enough teams that want him or that are putting up enough assets to really help the Nets restock? I think that's a fair question, given everything that has happened with Kyrie Irving in Cleveland, now in Boston, then now in Brooklyn. And I, I think it was, I believe it was Zach Lowe who said this, there's probably no bigger discrepancy in the NBA right now than the value between Kyrie Irving on the court and what teams would be willing to give up to get him, or maybe even the number of teams that would be willing to just push all their best chips in to try and get him. I don't believe that it would be this particularly frothy market. Again, there would be options for Kyrie Irving. He would absolutely have options for the Nets, though, to get back the assets necessary to either reload for a rebuild. That's not happening. Or stock the roster, stock the depth chart enough to get Kevin Durant to stay without Kyrie Irving. That doesn't seem all that likely either. You're not, you're just, you're not getting, I'd be flabbergasted if they got another star as part of this trade. And so what are you left with after that? You're left with Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons, who's coming off back surgery and by next year won't have played basketball in more than a year. Uh, Some solid role players, Joe Harris, hopefully he's healthy. Seth Curry, maybe you re-sign Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton. Moving Kyrie should open your full non-taxpayers mid-level. So there's that. And then the spare parts from the Kyrie Irving trade itself. What is that team in an Eastern Conference that has Boston, Milwaukee, Miami, even Toronto? Like, are the Nets better? They weren't this year. We can point that out to, okay, James Harden was injured, quit on the team. They don't have Kyrie Irving. Is that team better than Toronto? If they are, it's because Kevin Rant played in 70-something games and averaged 37 minutes per game. That's, that's not feasible. He has missed the combined... 130 plus games over the past three seasons. He turns 34 in September. He's not going to want to shoulder that workload. And so you're not deciding if you're the Nets, whether you want Kyrie Irving, you're effectively deciding whether you want Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. These two were a package deal in 2019 free agency. There's nothing we've heard that makes us believe anything there has changed. Again, there maybe is a pathway to the Nets convincing Kevin Durant that they can win without Kyrie, but it's not particularly likely. And I throw the contract here out the window. Durant is signed through 2025, 2026 without any early outs. The Nets can absolutely move on from Irving and then just keep KD in theory. Select superstars are always going to have the cachet to force a franchise's hand, no matter how much time is left on their deal. Durant is among that exclusive click. Building around disgruntled top seven players is untenable. If he wants out, Brooklyn doesn't just have to listen. It's all but obligated to, to acquiesce. And there's like this, th- there's this idea floating around that maybe Kevin Durant is just as frustrated with Kyrie as the Nets or as James Harden was. 
I'm sure it's possible from a basketball perspective, but he's come out on multiple occasions. And I think he told Vincent Goodwill of Yahoo Sports, uh, you know, earlier this spring that he and Kyrie are always going to be able to work it out off the court. And that Kyrie Irving is, you know, the relationship there is so much deeper than basketball. It is also the linchpin of why Kevin Durant is in Brooklyn. He's not in Brooklyn to play for the Nets or to maximize his chances at a third NBA championship. He's in Brooklyn, first and foremost, to play with Kyrie. He loses some of that incentive to be in Brooklyn if the, if the Nets get rid of Kyrie. And here's sort of the final thing. Maybe this is the Nets taking a stand against everything that's happened over the past couple of years. Now is not the time for the Nets to grow a backbone. The culture by committee that was is no more. Superstars are their new culture for better or worse. It isn't right, nor is it wrong. It's the decision, though, that the Nets made years ago, then again and again since, and deviating from it now by allowing or encouraging Kyrie to leave isn't noble. It's a reversal that will set the Nets back years, and it will cost them Kevin Durant. That's just where I land on all this. I believe both Kyrie and Kevin Durant will be in Brooklyn next season. Maybe something seismic happens and it forces the Nets to blow things up in the middle of the year or, or in a couple seasons down the line. I don't know, but they don't have the luxury of taking this hardline stance on Kyrie. This feels like an, a negotiating ploy, and it's not a, an especially convincing one to me. And look, just looming over all this, even if you say, oh, the Nets should just go start over. What are you getting for Kyrie? We've already gone through that. What are you getting for Kevin Durant? They're, they're, any team would want Kevin Durant, but he's still going to have control over where he goes. Nobody is acquiring a soon-to-be 34-year-old old $194.2 million over the next four seasons without receiving that player's stamp of approval. And then the teams that will reasonably resonate with Durant won't be ones that are drowning in A-plus trade chips or positioned to send back mega early lottery picks in the summers to come. The two teams that I think stand out as destinations that might appeal to Durant and then also have some centerpiece building blocks to throw Brooklyn's way there's Boston if they wanted to put Jalen Brown on the table. And again, they won't necessarily want to do that. Kevin Durant is 34. That's a, like a, I think it might, he's closer than not to a decade older than Jalen Brown. And the Celtics might win the title this season. Yeah, Kevin Durant ele- elevates that ceiling for a year or two, but that's not a given that Boston would just surrender Jalen Brown and Kevin Durant talks. Uh, let's make that clear. And then there's Phoenix. They can go the ultra-complicated DeAndre Ayton sign-and-trade route. Um, those are probably the contenders who are best suited to win over KD and send Brooklyn back a ton of stuff. Um, that at least sort of gives them a, a player who can help serve as a springboard into the future. Ironically, the Golden State Warriors probably fall under this thanks to Jonathan Kamega, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, still, even the most aggressive offers, they're not. They're going to do little to reload the Nets's it's neither hopelessly empty nor ever enviably stocked asset chest. And so here you are, if you're Brooklyn, you have to keep Kyrie in my mind. There's no other option. I, I will be smack you in the face surprised if he is on a different team or if he's not on a different, if he is on a different team, let's just say he is. I will then be shocked if Kevin Durant is with the nets through the entirety of next season. That's, where this situation seems to be at and the Kyrie Irving 
rumors while I believe Christian Winfield. And maybe you just don't buy into the notion that Sean Marks and co haven't spoken to Kevin Rand in weeks. That's fair. Uh, that does not negate anything else that Christian reported, in my opinion, someone who was proven very trustworthy in, in the past with his line of reporting and his insight. So I, I believe that the Nets want to believe that they have this type of leverage over Kyrie. I fail to believe, though, that this is anything more than much ado over nothing inside Brooklyn because they just don't have the luxury of controlling their own organization at this point. Again, I'm not do what is it the route I would have taken the extent to which they gave the franchise to these two stars. When you look at signing Deandre Jordan in 2019, then letting Kenny Atkinson leave in March, 2020. And then again, when they hired Steve Nash, then yet again, when they mortgaged their future and their depth to acquire James Harden. And again, still when they allowed Kyrie to rejoin the team as a part-time player this year, they've come too far down this road to turn back. And so I fully expect Kyrie Irving, and by extension, Kevin Durant to both be in Brooklyn next season. We'll go through these next two names in Zach Levine and DeAndre Ayton more quickly. Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report uh, uh, did report that Zach Levine's free agency is no longer considered a formality necessarily for the Chicago Bulls leading into the summer, uh, where it was always just assumed that, that he would resign. I guess a lot of executives around the league no longer believe that's the case. There has also been the report from Sean Devini of Heavy.com, where a lot of of people around the league think that all of this sort of hoopla is being drummed up by clutch sports um, as leverage in ne negotiations. What all of this points to for me and sort of has from the beginning, Zach Levine's an unrestricted free agent. So if he wants to leave, he can, he can absolutely leave. That's, you know, that's his prerogative. But when you're looking at just the, the guaranteed money difference and the fact that he's had injuries in the past, he's dealing with an injury right now uh if he signs a four-year max at five percent raises with another team he's looking at uh four years and a hundred and i think it's 57.4 million dollars if he signs that a five-year max with chicago at eight percent raises he is going to be looking at 212.3 million dollars over five years versus again 157.4 over four. That's a huge difference. And I think for a player like him, you're, you're going to, if, if you are him, what I mean is you're going to want to just guarantee that money. And if you need to figure out a way to get to a new team, you will do so later. So what this boils down to me, down for to me is will the bulls offer the full five-year max? That is their, their trounce card here because they can't, they can still offer him more money uh, over the course of, of four years, but four years, 160, 164 about versus four years, 157.4. That's not like a huge difference. So their, their leverage is that five-year box. So if you offer it, you keep Zach Levine. If you don't, I would bank on him leaving. And that's what it comes down to for me. I don't know that I love the teams that have been linked to Zach Levine primarily, by the way, Portland, does it? It makes sense, but it doesn't. Why are you going through all these hoops to transition from McCollum, Norman Powell, Damian Lillard to Zach Levine, Damian Lillard, and and who? Uh, Anthony Simons. I just I don't see the vision there. Atlanta makes a ton of sense if you're looking to get Trey Young moving off the ball to maximize the minutes he's not on the court, and then to just really soup up your offense when he is on the court. Uh, 
they don't have cap space. It would have to be via trade, which Chicago would welcome, I'm sure, if Zach Levine actually wanted to leave. I do like the idea of the Spurs. Um, they have been sort of bandied about, though, as a popular destination for DeAndre Ayton, who it seems is very unhappy in Phoenix. There's just been reporting that's pointed towards that and statements from his agent that has pointed toward that uh, since before the end of, of their playoff push. Um, there was the whole Game 7 drama with with him and head coach Monty Williams calling an internal decision when when DeAndre Ayton wasn't back in, in the game. There's a lot of stuff there that you you could dig into. I think you can also sort of read between the lines on a lot of the other stuff that's happened or the way that Phoenix has carried itself, even dating back to to last offseason. And uh, David, the four at the four point play, uh, Roman numerals four point play on Twitter, did a great thread the other day about sort of the the, the signals that pointed to the Suns keeping themselves flexible enough to acquire a star down the line. And that factored into their decision uh, not to extend DeAndre Ayton. And the belief per Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report is just that also the Suns do not view DeAndre Ayton or any center as worth 30 plus million dollars um, per year. And that's, you know, that's, that's a questionable uh, stance to take with Ayton specifically. Maybe you, I, I could probably understand it more where you, feel like you're able to approximate his value for a fraction of the cost. Maybe you're getting, you know, 60 to 75% of DeAndre Ayton for 20% to 30% of the cost. If you're going shopping in the free agency market, or maybe you're just more comfortable going after someone who's like 50 or 60% of the cost. And you look at a miles Turner salary, maybe you're just more comfortable paying that uh, dealing. Ayton gets really complicated because he will, let's just assume he gets a max. Uh, as an inbound salary, he is going to count as that $30.5 million figure. For the Suns to use him as a trade chip, though, the base compensation, base share compensation rule essentially means that he's going to be worth about $15.25 million in outgoing salary. And so for Phoenix, uh, that does not give them a, a ton of wiggle room uh, to take back a, a ton of money in a trade without also expanding the move. Um, or involving a third and expanding the move to include more players or involving a third team that's going to be able to take back money. Or you could just straight up deal with a team that has cap space, which is why uh, your, why the Spurs would be popular because they could have the most cap space in the league. So that would be something to watch. I don't, the DeAndre Ayton stuff, even though he's a restricted free agent, meaning Phoenix has the ability to match any contract offer he gets. It fascinates me more than whatever's happening with Zach Levine. I don't know what I would bet on with, with Zach Levine. I bet on him being in Chicago next season with Aiton. I'm sort of 50, 50. I want to be bold and say he won't be on the suns, but just even looking at the restricted free agency landscape and the teams with cap space, there's Detroit and San Antonio. I feel like they could be aggressive in going after him. Unless you're working out a sign and trade though, Phoenix has to match. Like they're obligated to max. And you can try and move him later. If you're not having signed and trade discussions. And so the window to move, Aiton just feels so narrow that it's tough for me to just outright predict that he won't be in Phoenix next season. Certainly a situation to, to monitor though. That's all out of the way though. So let's get into some NBA draft talk very quickly. Please, please, pretty, please from the bottom of my heart, remember rate review and subscribe to this podcast, wherever you are getting your podcast. And this is your first time checking us out because you're a very loyal follower of Adam Spinella, or you just wanted to hear me ramble at the beginning about mainly Kyrie Irving and the Nets which I wrote about over at Bleach Report, if you want to check that out. 
Anyway, if this is your first time here, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. If you have done all those things, we would ask that maybe you help us promote the podcast, recommend us to friends, family members, acquaintances, randos uh, who you know like basketball. That is that is done. This long-winded intro is over. Let's go into the NBA draft. Some of the biggest questions. It's uh, We're going to have Spinella. We'll have a two-part conversation. This is the first part, part of it, and I hope you enjoy it. Spins. Welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast, an annual tradition unlike any other that you are kind enough to indulge where I have you on to just extract as much NBA draft information out of your brain as humanly possible. We're doing this probably a little bit earlier than we normally would because you have pending nuptials. Congratulations to you. We love, we absolutely love to see it. Uh, I appreciate you coming on though. As always, the biggest, most important question I have for you though, how are you doing? Oh, Dan, uh, always good to be here, man. The, the hardwood knocks are always a, a friendly, uh, friendly confines for me. Love being here. Love chatting with you about the NBA. Yes. Our annual tradition going over the draft and again, a little bit sooner than we typically do because I'm taking about a two week hiatus right before the draft. What timing could be better, but, uh, getting married, heading out setting sail and putting my phone, my Twitter, my laptop, all of the film stuff on hold for a couple of weeks, which, is very challenging for me to do. Just, I, I love doing uh, doing draft work and this is a busy and fun time of year, but happy wife, happy life. So I'm going to start practicing that early and uh, and make sure that that we have a great time with our, our wedding, our honeymoon. But let's, uh, let's get down to business today and, and talk NBA draft stuff because this is actually turning into a super fascinating draft cycle. Well, first, if, assuming everyone listened to the intro, Spins is a sicko with the amount of work that he puts into this, just between coaching a basketball team and then all the content he puts out. It's psychotic. And I hope you actually do put your phone, Twitter, everything away for a couple of weeks. You deserve it. And also speaking as someone who did not do that uh, after they tried to take some time off from their honeymoon, your significant other will dramatically appreciate it when you do. So just some friendly advice that you didn't ask for, uh, <laughs> but no one, Everyone deserves to unplug you, especially though. I would, I would argue it's, it's needed. That being said, please let me, please, please let me now like force you to return to the grind by asking you about the draft. We have to start, I think just with the big three, um, Chet, Chet Holmgren, Pablo Bancaro and Jabari Smith. What is like, I've seen them. I, I thought leading in that there would like, we get to a consensus for the number one pick and maybe we will be as more information trickles out. But I've seen everyone from Paolo to Chet to Jabari mock at number one. And so how do you sort of delineate between these three right now? So the there are two ways to look at that. One is with the buzz that's creating around the NBA and where things are trending from a consensus and mainstream standpoint. That seems to be going towards Jabari Smith out of Auburn a little bit more because he has a great deal of offensive upside. You very rarely see guys who are 6'10 or 6'11 that shoot the ball as purely and as cleanly as he can, both in spot-ups, pick and pops, on the move and screening actions. He's a really good isolation scorer and at that size. You know, the turnaround jumper, the one dribble pull-ups in the mid-range, like he just shoots over the top of anybody defending him. He's essentially a really big shooting wing and has a little bit of fluidity to him. Uh, I'm not the biggest Jabari Smith fan, and I know we'll get into that. I actually have him fourth on my overall board. So 
there's some uh, lack of harmony going on between what I'm seeing and what a lot of other executives and teams and, uh, and kind of the consensus experts out there are feeling their way through. But Jabari seems to be inching slightly above everybody else. I think Chet Holmgren is the one guy who's a lock to go top two. Still a chance that he goes number one overall to Orlando, but just with his combination of length, perimeter skills, defensive impact, he's he's going to be really valued for the Oklahoma City franchise if he's available at two. And then Paolo Bancaro, who's my number one prospect, a really big fan of his polished offensive arsenal, think that he comes in, makes an immediate impact because he's ready to shoulder a pretty strong offensive load, but not as poor of a defender as some outlets may either lead you to believe or just have bought into. So I'm, I actually don't think Paolo's defense is anything to worry about. And because of that, I just feel really, really comfortable with the polished offensive arsenal and saying that he should be the top guy in this class. I'm in love with Paolo. And I think probably because I've consumed so much box and one content, maybe you just brainwashed me to right. love him as well. I'm, I'm going to ask you how you would order them out, but I feel like we need to get, when you're looking at how the teams might draft to the root of how like their impacts might scale out next season, who among the three is ready to have the, the most immediate impact on their team. I think Paolo um, scoring guys who are physically ready coming to the NBA and are, are just ready to go. Uh, Jabari is probably a little bit more role dependent on guards that are going to be able to get him the ball. And the biggest reason for that is because he's not a self-creator that gets to the rim. He doesn't have a very good handle. There's something mechanically a little bit different about him. He's reliant on guys being able to create open shots for him. Now he can make tough ones off one dribbles or isolations around the elbow area, but his best usage is going to be more of a drive and kick guy where he's, he's standing there and knocking down open shots created by others. Chet physically, you just, you never know how those guys really, um, you know, fair at their, their size and skinniness coming in year one in the league. So I don't think it's a long-term concern that would prevent me from drafting Holmgren. But I also think that what we saw this year with Evan Mobley was the perfect team and organization to blanket him while his body needs that time to develop. Uh, Jared Allen having another rim protector in Cleveland helped Mobley make that transition. I think that again, situation dependent, Chet might have that if he goes in any of those teams in the top three, but if it's Oklahoma city, which seems to be the most likely outcome at this point, uh, that's, I don't know if he'll have that. Uh, so by process of elimination, I'm going Paolo for immediate impact. Fast. And I think this is actually an important part of the discussion that might not get talked about enough. And we had this conversation last year, which I didn't draft again, uh, bring it up again, where we're both kind of best player available overfit, especially when you're this high in the draft. So I look at this and I go, well, who do we think among these three, five years, seven years down the line is going to be the best player, has the highest ceiling? And you, in the outline, said that it was super tough for you to pick, but who would you lean towards if you, if I forced you to choose, which obviously I am? Yeah, I, I lean towards Chet just because I think his defensive impact is enormous. And I know the constraints of the offense that he played in at Gonzaga that he most likely has more to his game than he was able to show in the system that he played in in college. You know, Auburn and Duke both really built their offenses around their top guys. So the farthest away from being able to demonstrate what an ideal offensive version of him is would be Chet Holmgren. So because of that, I think it's slightly higher upside, but um, he probably of the three has the most clear physical limitations. So 
you know, that's, it becomes a risk reward thing. Excuse me. And look, every franchise has to make that decision for themselves. I think best player available is always the way to go in the draft. But when you're, you know, convinced that two or three guys are neck and neck and in that same tier, it's less about fit for the top guys in the draft and more about what's the ideal way you want to build your organization. What do you want to build around? Is it having that one offensive cornerstone? Then it's probably Paolo. Is it the defensive cornerstone? Then it's probably Chet. Is it the high upside guy who also is an incredibly valuable role player because he's an elite three-point shooter and has some switchable defense, then it's Jabari. So uh, that's really the risk reward or the uh, the pros and cons that teams are sifting through at this point, as opposed to trying to figure out who's really the best player amongst them. I think it's pretty neck and neck for a lot of teams. And when you hear fit in that conversation, it's not fit with the roster that they have. It's fit with the roster they want to build. I do think what is interesting, and this does skew heavily towards, well, this is the roster they have. You look at two of these teams in the top three, Orlando and Houston. There are already, I wouldn't call any of them foundational bigs, um, but Orlando has Wendell Carter Jr., Jonathan Isaac. Houston has Alperin Shangun. Can these, can all, can all of these three bigs that are coming in the draft, can they operate alongside another big or even looking at the rosters that they're prospectively going on to now, is there anything that could be prohibitive because they're, it, it, it does matter. Like if you're bringing someone into a situation in, let's just say Orlando and you, you can't really play alongside Wendell Carter jr, but you paid him and he's good. So how are you not going to play him? Then you have to stagger to make it effective. Can all of these guys, since it does seem at least theoretically up in the air that all three of these players can also operate alongside what would be another big. I don't want to call it a center or power forward, but just another big. And I appreciate you not calling it that. Um, yeah, they, they definitely can. Yeah, all three of them in different ways, right? So I think the hardest combination to find would be putting Jabari Smith with a non-rim protecting big. Okay. But you can still make, make it work if you're offensively potent enough that you're just outscoring teams on the other end. So I think every guy can fit in with another big man. I would say that Jabari and Paolo probably have to. Chet is the only one long-term that I would say, I'd be okay with this guy playing the five, but year one, he's not physically ready for that role. So I think all of them project more as a four in their immediate impact and how the game evolves over the next decade, how their skill continues to to move out or in Chet's case, how he physically develops is going to dictate whether they play the four or the five and really what types of guys are best with them. That's interesting on Paulo. And I know that John Hollinger has called it space ball, where it's these bigger players who can play like smalls. So you're not playing small ball and you can kind of throw, you know, the positional size out the window. But I look at him and that's, that's interesting that you consider him a four long-term and you know more about, or like a co- needs a co-big man almost long-term yeah. to where you're not going to have him as the only big. Uh, that's just interesting to me. Sure. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons he's most frequently mocked at three in a lot of mainstream boards right now is because they're seeing the need to have the right guy next to him. What, what I think is those guys are easy to get in the NBA rim protectors who can stand in the dunker spot or play pick and roll and just slam it down and provide value. I think that's an easy acquisition to make. And if that enhances Paolo Banquero, then why would you steer away from taking him with the top overall pick? So how do you, I think we, we all know by now, and anyone who watched box N one's mock draft 3.0, Knows too, but how do you have them mocked right now? So 
I have, uh, for what I would do, Paolo one to Orlando, Chet two to Oklahoma City. And uh, again, that's the two best players in the draft, in my opinion. And Chet being that one guy that I, I really love the fit in Oklahoma City. And then I would have Jabari three to Houston. And it does seem like, though, that a lot of people believe Jabari is going to be the actual player that goes number one to Orlando. Yeah, they do. And then Chet, too. And that would leave Paolo for three, which again, great fits for, for Houston, either with Jabari or really with any of them. Yeah, I think Houston's in the driver's seat here and feeling comfortable taking whoever falls to three. But uh, I, I think that if Orlando ends up taking Jabari, then both Oklahoma City and Houston wind up with fantastic fits for their organization. I couldn't be an NBA executive because if I was in Houston, I would almost welcome the opportunity to be at three. So I don't have to make the choice. It was made for me. Uh, is there, let's just say Orlando really convinces people they're undecided or that they could take anyone, or maybe that they're in love with Chet. He seems like the guy that almost needs to go to Oklahoma city or Oklahoma city, like needs him. Would you consider giving up something small if you're OKC to go from two to one? Or does it need to actually, would it have to be something bigger if you're like, the thing I'm just thinking about is if you're Orlando and you want your, if you don't, it doesn't seem like they would take Chet. It just doesn't seem that way. And if you're not going to take money, would you just take Kenrich Williams or would OKC give you like one of their lower level first, just to jump that one spot to ensure that you get Chet just because you're so close. You're so right there. Or is that sort of just a non-starter? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they absolutely have to consider it and, if they are dead set on getting Chet Holmgren, make the phone call and figure out what it costs to move up to number one. I think the only fear of Orlando taking Chet and the reason he's still somewhat in play at number one is because of the relationship with him and Jalen Suggs, two guys that have played together in the past. And, you know, if they really believe Jalen's the guy to build around in the future, Chet can come in and anchor their defense. He fits their organizational MO, which has always been about length. He's the longest guy of these top three. So there, there's a lot of reason to uh, rationalize the fit for Chet in Orlando, but I don't know if right now the rumor mill is spinning fast enough to try to say that Oklahoma City has to make an offer to get up to number one in order to make sure they get Chet. Orlando should absolutely make it so that they do, though. <laughs> no <be> doubt. <laughs> uh, moving sort of on to the rest of the lottery topics, I think we have to begin with Jaden Ivey, who has been billed, except by you, as the clear number four guy in this draft and so i guess can i get your general thoughts on Jaden Ivey? is he the no-brainer pick at number four even like even if we're throwing away the context of the team that's currently sitting there which i don't know if we can do because it's no, not just because yeah it's not because <laughs> sacramento doesn't have a great fit for ivy which they don't like there are some concerns about him and De'Aaron fox playing side by side in the half court it's that i'm i am done trying to predict what the sacramento kings are going to do as an organization you hear rumors out there that they're going to try to go all in and win now. Their general manager has not received an extension to date. He's on a lame duck contract, which makes it really hard to make the patient pick here, particularly if your owner knows that there are going to be teams calling up. What I believe is that Jade and Ivy is actually a top three prospect in this class. Unbelievable athlete, like tier one type of guard. Derek Rose meets John Morant type of hops and bursts and athleticism, particularly in the open court, but he can go from zero to 60 and just go right around guys. And it's so impressive that he can handle the ball at that level and be able to, to score shiftily or powerfully in traffic developed a lot as a three point shooter over the last year. I had major concerns about Ivy as a pick and roll playmaker as a scorer in the mid range. Those were the two kind of areas that were knocks on him coming into this draft cycle. 
I think the passing is actually pretty solid when you surround him with shooters and playing the spread pick and roll and the mid range stuff, you know, it doesn't look good, but it's decently effective. So I'm not overall worried about the concerns never coming to fruition. And because he's such a top tier athlete at a guard position, that's incredibly important. I just, I really value what he brings to the table. Now, can Sacramento be patient enough to try to take a guy like him? I don't know. But if he's available at four, he's such a clear-cut kind of prospect above everybody else that would be available that they're going to get calls about moving up to get Jaden Ivey. And it's just a question of if the Kings think the offer is right and have a package of a veteran to really entice them to try to win more now, which I think is a mistake. But it's the Kings, baby. Let's fire it up. Yeah, there is. And look, just what we know about the trade landscape right now, it doesn't seem like there's a player who's available that would make sense to trade. There is talk that the Blazers would give up number seven for Jeremy Grant, which is just Jeremy Grant is really good. That is just bonkers to me. And we'll get into that in a second. But I, the Kings, I can't tell if they were that in love with Sabonis. That was the most bizarre trade. It felt so random. They, If they thought that they needed to make a choice, though, between Halliburton and Fox, there's no way you look at Ivy and Fox then as a pairing that works. And so I'm with, I'm with you that you should just take, if he's on the board and he is the best player available, just just take him. But I could see the Kings either just moving for the sake of moving or drafting for fit. And I would argue the former is probably less detrimental. Like maybe you could move down if you want someone else in this draft. And I'm sure there are teams that want to, you know, I'd look at the teams that probably wanted to hop in the top four and couldn't like the Pacers, the like, well, the Blazers aren't going to want Jaden Ivy, but like there are teams that should want to even the Pistons falling out of the top four. So unless you're going to be committed to a more gradual process, I really think that Sacramento needs to like non detrimentally do something with this pick. I would say it's moved down because I don't like any of the actual players that they could probably get for, you know, there's, even when you're talking about, oh, it's like if Bradley Beal wants it, you're like, what is Bradley Beal? Like, yeah, he helps the Kings, but with Sabonis and Beal and five, like, what is that absolutely doing for you? So it feels like the draft almost begins at number four in the sense that anything can just happen at that spot. Yeah. And, and w- one of the reasons for that is because the top three teams there in Orlando, Oklahoma City, and Houston don't need guards, right? It becomes a lot harder to think about them taking Jaden Ivey in the top three because they feel so set both athletically and positionally um, at the same overlaps with Ivy. So the, the draft, you know, those top three, the order that they fall in is going to be important, but the real madness is going to start at four with trade up possibilities. Do the Kings just bite the bullet and take him? Are they going to be patient enough and go with the mystery man in this class, Shaden Sharp, who's kind of rumored to be around that top five area. So a lot of different avenues, as I say, if you're trying to predict the Sacramento Kings and what they're doing, you're an idiot because you're never going to be able to figure out exactly what's going on in their organization. And uh, I'm just uh, that's going to be a really fun one to sit back and watch. Speaking as someone who is a little bit higher on the Fox of bonus fit than I was at first blush, I don't even think the Kings know what they're doing. So let's just let's just be fair there. So I invented a, a prospect apparently when doing the outline for you and called them Jaden Sharp when I was making this at four in the morning. Shaden Sharp, what makes him such a polarizing prospect aside from the, is it anything functionally about his game or is this just, oh, he wasn't in college last year? There's a lot of the mystery aspect at play. And it's not just that he didn't play in college. It's that he was such a late riser up 
recruiting boards in high school, uh, kind of more of a fringe top 100 guy going into his junior year in high school, started to play really well, hit a growth spurt, athletically turned into a freak. And now all of a sudden he's going up, 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 up recruiting boards, winds up at Kentucky, you know, comes in a year early and tries to make all of this stuff work to prepare for whatever his, his thought process was. But Sharp has been polarizing from the college basketball community that fans of college basketball really don't love the thought of a top tier prospect coming in, practicing or working out with the team and not having any intention of benefiting the program by ever stepping foot on the floor and playing that they feel like Sharp used Kentucky to essentially be a elite training ground for six months to get him ready for the draft and for NBA. So polarizing in a lot of senses in that regard, polarizing as a prospect because he's such a fast riser and wasn't the clear cut number one guy, you know, all the way through his high school career. And then just the mystery of he hasn't played against legitimate competition in over a year. So how do we project guys who go from high school to, to the pros anymore? Uh, that's not something that general managers have, have been used to doing and let alone something they had success with when they were used to doing it, you know, 15 years ago when guys could just declare right out of high school. So he's going to be polarizing. I love sharp because the consequences of missing don't fall back on me at all. Right. I'm not, I don't have to live with not getting my next contract. Right. Shaden sharp doesn't turn in anything. So it's a lot easier for me to say, Hey, let's just take the swing, but legitimate superstar upside athleticism, physicality, 6'11 wingspan, ability to shoot and decent playmaking off the bounce. Like he's just, he's flashed so many great things that at five, after the top four guys are off the board, he's the guy that has the clearest upside. There, there's just, there's no doubt about that. It's just, when are you willing to take that risk as an organization? Do you one think that's probably the ceiling on where he'll be picked number five and two, could you see this just given the concerns and the lack of sample size over the past year plus, however long it's been, does he have like sort of the, everyone has a mock like in the four five, six, seven range now or whatever. Does he have the potential to maybe even fall last minute? I think so. I mean, I think anybody that's a wild card has the ability to fall. If you feel really comfortable with the pieces that are also in that range in the draft. Um, I would be shocked if he falls past Indiana just because that's a, that's a franchise starving for a star and they have the patience in the window and the positional fit to be able to invest in him. I just, I, I can't see him getting past Indiana, but I think he's in play as high as four at Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, I don't wish Sacramento upon him. If he's a project, I hope that he, I'm just, I feel bad that I'm saying this about Kings fans, but I would prefer to see him in Detroit, Indiana, literally anywhere else at this point. Who is the better, just going, just looping archetypes into here, who's the better, you know, long-term investment when you're sort of in this area of the lottery between, let's say, five and nine, whatever it is, between Benedict Matherin and Keegan Murray? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think it's going to depend on what you ask them to do. So I really like Keegan Murray and analytical models love him because he has very few weak spots in his game. But if you are drafting him with the intention of turning him into a top two scorer on your franchise, I think that's a mistake. I think he's the perfect third cog 
plays a little bit like a Danny Granger-ish, Pascal Siakam-ish, Tobias Harris-ish type of guy. And I think that they're best when you have a primary who's a guard around them and another guy who can go create his own shot. Um, not really, he's more of a four, kind of similar to what, what Paolo was. I think Keegan eventually will be able to play some smaller five. I think he's skilled enough to play some three, but um, really it, it's just going to depend about what you ask Keegan Murray to do. Benedict Mather, and I, I think has a little bit higher of an upside at the next level because he's a little bit more live wire of an athlete. And I love his ability to shoot, not just catch and shoot on the perimeter, but as a movement guy, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a team that already has an established star or two, but they need space in order to operate, they're a great athlete and they just, what, whatever the explanation is, I think Matherin fits in a little bit better and has higher upside there. I think Murray is a better long-term investment for a team that, you know, probably has uh, the need for versatility in the front court because they don't have that already, but established stars or tent poles of the, the organization at the, the big and the guard spots already taken care of. And you said you deem Keegan Murray would probably be the safer pick. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a little bit more of a safer pick. It's not necessarily that Matherin has higher upside, but I think if both guys hit Matherin's role is more valuable. Uh, just, I, I love having movement shooters due to the gravity that they create and make everybody else better. Looking at AJ Griffin, should teams actually be concerned about the dearth of things he does outside of shot making, but it's difficult shot making, is it not? So that's like, if you have to have, I don't want to call it a singular skill, but if you have to be like limited dimensionally, like that's the way to almost be, or they're just, and I definitely wouldn't know, but like, are there any undersold bright spots of his game that aren't being talked up enough leading into the draft? So to that last question, no. Um, oh man. Yeah. I'm, I'm not an AJ Griffin guy and it's a shame. I, you know, I did a podcast with Sam Vecini a couple of days ago and talked a lot about AJ Griffin. And the thing that I keep circling back to is I absolutely loved him when he was in high school, like thought he was going to be the next superstar freak athlete, really, really high flying player skilled shot the crap out of the ball does everything. Well, he doesn't look like the same guy that I saw two years ago when or three years ago when he was playing in New York city. Um, it's concerning. He does not defend at a very high level. Now he has the raw physical tools to eventually be able to get there, but he's so far behind everybody else in this draft class that it is a legitimate red flag. Teams have to be aware of, um, Dan, I'm going to throw a coaching ism at you and a question for you. Do you know what the best ability is for a basketball coach? Oh God, no. The best ability is availability. So when we talk about the dearth of all of the things that Griffin might not have in his game right now, or the upside to be able to add them, he's the one guy with injury concerns, with just a, a track record of not always being there. And part of that is bad luck and just how things have struck his body over the last few years. The other part of that is coach K would remove him from the lineup at the end of games at Duke because he couldn't trust him to be on the floor in those moments. And if you're not a guy that's going to be available when the game is on the line, that puts a massive ceiling to me on where I'd be willing to draft you. It's one thing if it's positional and it's matchups, right? Like a big guy who has to be taken off the floor because the other team goes five guards 
it's another thing when you're supposed to be this multi-positional athlete who's six, six and chiseled, and you just can't find a place on the floor to guard. That's, that's really concerning to me. Is, is the, is the shot making them that prolific that, because I, I hear that I listen to what you've said on the box and one YouTube channel. I've read stuff on him. And then I'm kind of just like, when you look at some of these mock drafts, I'm almost like, well, okay, well then why not just go, if you're a team in this position, why AJ Griffin over Dyson Daniels, for example, like, why is that something that exists? If he seemed, if there are that many red flags attached to his game. Yeah. I don't think it will end up being that way on draft night. I think this is, again, I mentioned earlier, a lot of us who are sitting on the outside looking in, we don't have the fear of repercussions. So putting AJ Griffin fifth on a big board is so easy to do because you see the tantalizing upside. You just, it's easy to sit back and say, Hey, I'm going to bet on that guy. Cause why the hell not? And if he hits, he hits really big, but it, it doesn't work that way for NBA teams. I think that there are three really safe bets outside of the top five, Keegan Murray, Dyson Daniels, Benedict Matherin. That takes you down to eight. After there, like a guy like Jalen Duran from Memphis, a really talented high upside big. The right team fit is going to be important for who gets him, but really, really high ceiling for a big guy. And then now we're talking back half of the lottery where these are teams that are drafting that are ambitious about making the playoffs and doing so a little bit earlier in their, you know, in the window of when they make this selection. So Griffin to me has a 10 to 18 type of range right now. And it's probably going to be a little bit on the earlier side because the upside is, is there and, and he's a fantastic catch and shoot prospect. But I worry about a lot of things with him. I will say I'm rooting for him to go earlier than not because I would like I would like the Knicks to take Dyson Daniels if I'm trying to be realistic of who could be available. I don't know if he's still going to be there. Will Dyson Daniels still be available at number eleven? Biggest Just say problem. yes. Yeah. I Can wish I pay I you to say yes? <laughs> I, I wish I could. Um, and, and the biggest reason I'll say no is because I think if he is around at ten, the Wizards would snatch him up. I think he's a great fit in Washington next to Bradley Beal. But he was a big winner out of the NBA draft combine last week in Chicago and private workouts, the way that his shot has continued to progress and, and looks really good. I think he's closer to fifth than he is to 11th. Well, that's a little bit upsetting, not unexpected. Do you think that his jumper is going to come along in the NBA? Yeah, I wouldn't. I would not bet against it. I think that he's shown decent growth in that area. Uh, I don't love the dribble pull-up stuff, but I think from a catch-and-shoot standpoint, he's going to at least be really solid where he projects as an incredibly high-end role player, great defender, smart basketball IQ, long, lean finisher, amazing floater, which is important for guards to have in their bag these days. Uh, the, the one thing that's missing to me is the shooting reliability, particularly off the bounce. And if that ever comes, like he's just he's a really, really dependable guy. To sort of wrap up our lottery talk, what do you make? And I've seen this attached to um, mostly Mark Williams and Jalen Duran about why take a center, a rim running, you know, shot blocking center, um, someone or, or even if that big can do more, but primarily their role is going to scale to that. Why draft that type of player in the lottery or higher at all uh, when you can just go out on the free agency market and probably approximate? Uh, a more established level of that when you're not talking about a rookie for maybe even much cheaper than what their rookie scale 
is going to to pay them? What do you like sort of make? Where do you land on on that philosophy? I used to really lean heavily into the the idea that if it's not an elite elite big, like don't take them till that earliest, the later part of the first round. I've kind of changed my tune over that, particularly in this draft cycle. Uh, maybe that's changing the rules to fit the way you want the game to be played right now. But uh, whatever I can do, it I want. I guess you know I, I like Mark Williams and Jalen Duran as lottery prospects, and value is really more dependent on the rest of the draft class and the importance to the drafting team than it is just looking at the position and saying, we need to avoid that. Like if you think both guys are starter caliber players and talents, then there becomes a point in the draft when getting a starting caliber player, regardless of the position is better than swinging anywhere else. Uh, And and I think that in this draft class, there's a little bit of a drop-off when you get outside the top 14 or 15. So that would move them into lottery level talents, regardless of, the positionality of things. And at some point it just becomes ridiculous to pass on pretty safe bets. Even if you say, well, that's not the ideal way that we would want to build our roster because we can go bargain hunting for the, a similar type of guy elsewhere. Like I just, I think there is enough upside, especially for Duran, because I view him as being a little bit switchable that it's worth making the swing on. Uh, I have Duran as I think ninth on my board right now and Mark Williams 11th or 12th. So, you know, two guys that are, are guys I would project to be starters in the NBA. And I have a really hard time saying just because of my philosophy, I'm not touching them until the later part of the first round because I'm against that position and they don't shoot it well enough to deserve that you know, versatile, functional type of role. So uh, I, I'm starting to change my tune. I think I've always sort of fallen on that side of the fence where you've where you found yourself now. And I look at it through this way. And I hate talking about player salaries in this context, but it is part of the team building process. I'm not concerned about doing it when they're on their rookie scales, especially when you're talking about if you, let's say they take them at 10th, that's going to be about a four year, $20 million deal that it could be thought like, like that's not that much money. It's do you want to pay that type of player on his second deal? for what he would cost. That's where I think it becomes a more realistic question. And it's why I think I've seen there have been jokes throughout Nick's Twitter is like Jericho Sims is why you don't pay Mitchell Robinson big time money in free agency. That might be an extreme, but it's also right because you've given that player Mitchell Robinson was a bargain in itself. When you look at where he was drafted in his contract, but if that player can develop in Mitchell Robinson's case, where I've seen people compare him, like the Rudy Gobert comparisons are out the window, but I think the most egregious examples I've seen were the, and I think you and I actually even talked about this, were the Robert Williams, the third stuff where it's like, no, Robert Williams is more dynamic when it comes to guarding on the perimeter and passing among other things. But those are the two biggest factors that stand out to me. And Mitchell Robinson really failing to develop any type of feel on the offensive end. That is an indictment against his next contract if you're a team. And so looking at the lottery specifically, I wouldn't hesitate, especially if you think they're the best player available. Even if you, even if you're drafting for fit, if you like getting a center under lock and key for that many years at that price with some maybe higher upside or there's, there's depth to develop him, that still seems like a a no brainer to me. And I feel like we veered too far into the, the realm of, Oh, centers or big men are the new running backs. And it's just, it's not like that for me. No, I I totally agree. I think you said that pretty elegantly. Um, you know, Duran, he's 18 years old. He's the youngest guy in this draft class. Oh, 18? I, I think, oh my God. Yeah, like he's he's super, super young. So 
he'll be 22 years old when his rookie contract expires. So what's the downside of giving him another four years? Yeah, you're going to have to pay a little bit for it, but monumental upside for what he's able to do at his young age. And then Mark Williams, 20 years old, really polished and able to come in and have an impact. Typically, the argument against the four-year rookie contract cycle for bigs is that in order to be a starting caliber rim protector, you need like two years of NBA experience. You have to learn every single angle and call and be incredibly dependable as a communicator. Williams is much farther along in that trajectory than most young big men, which is why I say worth a lottery pick and able to come in and impact a franchise, at least in some role from day one. Um, Mark Williams, he shot like 73% from the field this year. He led the NCAA in dunks, fantastic rim protector and, and covered up a lot of mistakes that guys like AJ Griffin made on the perimeter for Duke. So I think an invaluable piece in a lot of ways. And again, if we're talking a starter or a really high end role player at the end of the lottery, that's important. Like out of every draft class, there's usually no more than 20 to 23 guys then end up sticking in the NBA long-term on second deals and, and being you know, valued members of a rotation. So if you believe that he's going to be that, take him in the top 20. Like there's, there's very little argument that I think Mark, that there are few people out there that would think Mark Williams won't turn into that type of guy in the NBA. And again, just the, the fact that it doesn't really cost that much, like you're not even paying them Jav- JaVale McGee money. But at this point, so, uh, and you have, I guess you have Duran over Williams at this point on your big board, correct? I do just leaning a little bit more towards the upside. I think it'd be easy to put Williams ahead because of what we see now, but Duran's natural tools combined with how quickly he learned through his freshman season at Memphis, give me a little bit more hope that he can get to a higher ceiling. Spins. This was fantastic. As always, you are a vat, an endless bottomless vat of information and insight. I appreciate it. Are you able to tell our listeners where they can find you and all the spectacular work that you do. I am willing and able, Dan. Uh, thank you again for having me on here, but follow me on Twitter at the box and one underscore our YouTube channel. Adam Spinella has NBA draft scouting reports coming out pretty much every day. And then we have a Substack page that writes about those prospects in longer form, as well as some draft philosophy pieces. That's the box and one substack.com. All of our work comes in one of those three places. So if you hit any of those up, you're guaranteed to find something that you might disagree with. The link to the YouTube channels in the description. I highly recommend anyone who's going into crash course mode for the draft like myself needs to check it out. Uh, it's amazing. Spins, thank you so much. Congratulations in advance on the wedding. And like we said at the top, I hope that you're able to enjoy it and end unplugged because you work really hard. And I know myself and everyone who listens to this around these parts super appreciate all the hard work that you do. Appreciate it.